Our sermon text for today, Mark chapter 6, 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for having me speak. Is it, is it typical to stay up here? Does the speaker usually go down on the main floor? Is this all right? All right, if I see anybody dozing off, I'm coming down there, all right? So don't get too comfortable. It really is a privilege for me to open up God's Word with you today. I hinted at this earlier or just shared a little bit about it, but Aaron's a really special person to me in my life, and actually my wife um, knows Cindy McFarland very well and calls her Aunt Cindy. My wife grew up in Togo, West Africa as an MK, and Aunt Cindy was on the missionary team there. Um, so some special connections to the church family here. Aaron is an interesting person in my life because he's kind of a person that um, connects se segments of my life together. So I went to visit him where, when I was still in Bible college, and that feels like a former life. It feels like light years away. But then I went back to visit him again when I was married, and that's a whole other segment of my life. And now it's all come full circle, and he lives here and we're kind of in pastoral ministry together in the same area. So he's one of those people that just kind of sticks with you through all the stages and phases of life. Not, not everybody's that way. But I really appreciate Aaron very much. He's been a mentor to me in so many ways. And um, yeah, God's just used him in powerful ways in my life at pivotal and important moments. So anytime I get to talk to him, I really appreciate it. You know, you think when a friend moves to the area that you'd see a lot, each other a lot more than you actually do, but then... Each of you has your own life, and life is busy, and your own routines and family schedules, so I don't see him as much as I'd like, but I appreciate him so much, and I'm, I'm glad for the privilege to be able to come open up the word with you today. Our text was just read aloud. It comes from Mark chapter 6. Uh, before we dive into Mark chapter 6, and I try to paint the setting and the context, let me make com comment about the complimentary reading from Isaiah 55. I think that reading is important and goes hand in hand with our passage and this section in Mark because Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, saw himself as the one that Isaiah was ultimately pointing to. In the book of comfort, 
the second half of Isaiah's oracle, chapters 40 through 66. Isaiah is giving a message of comfort to God's people that comes at a pivotal, crucial juncture in the history of redemption, in the history of God's people. God's people had gone astray into idolatry. They were going to be judged and condemned um, in um, desolating ways, exiled from their homeland. The temple was going to be destroyed, taken captive by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Uh, the Babylonians. It was a very dark and bleak time in the history of God's people. And Isaiah warned about this in these oracle, oracles of judgment in the first book, Isaiah 1 through 39. And he's continually warning in his, in his message to Israel that they are ignoring and rejecting the word of the Lord. And their hearts are hard against God's truth. But in the second book, he turns his message into a message of projected hope and comfort and peace and deliverance, which climaxes in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That one day God will send a champion, a messiah, who will crush sin and death by taking the penalty for the sins of God's people upon himself. As Isaiah 53 says, the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Pointing forward to the one who would come and win salvation for God's people. Then Isaiah 55, following closely on the heels of Isaiah 53, is a pronouncement that everyone who is thirsty should come and drink from the springs of the water of life and live. That this offer of salvation and redemption is a free offer, a gift solely by God's grace, purchased by the Messiah, and that if you're going to come, you have to receive the word of the Lord. It's an admonition to receive God's word. And in, in Isaiah's time, the, the hearts of God's people were so hardened against God's word. When Jesus showed up in his ministry, he spoke in the language of Isaiah. He said things like in Mark chapter 4, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The sad reality is not everyone has ears to hear the message of the gospel and a heart to receive it. Some hearts are hardened and will reject gospel truth. And that dovetails with where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 6. I want to begin with a common saying. We could call it a contemporary proverb. I'm sure you're familiar with, familiar with it. And the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Have you encountered that before? Do you have a sense of what that means? Familiarity breeds contempt. I just want to tell a small anecdote that kind of illustrates this idea. Um, our dentist in Allen Park, recently, his son joined the practice and became a certified and licensed dentist. So Dr. Paul was the dentist that we started under 10, 13 years ago, and now his son, Dr. Josh, has come on in recent years and so when you go to see the dentist, that's everybody's favorite time of year, right? Every six months you go for that dreaded appointment. When you go to see the dentist, you can request, do you want to see Dr. Paul or you want to see Dr. Josh? I didn't really grow up with Josh, but I knew him from the time he was in high school, maybe junior high. You know, you know somebody for a long period of time, and in your mind, they're sort of a knucklehead. You know, you think of them at that, as that immature junior hire, not unlike how Aaron thinks of me in my former stages of life. So to think of Dr. Josh putting sharp metal instruments into my mouth is not necessarily a pleasant thought. 
you know? And that's not because he's not credentialed. He's actually got extremely good credentials from U of D Mercy, and they say he's like an artist the way that he does cavities. Not that I ever have cavities and need fillings, uh, but he's extremely proficient. If you're sitting in Dr. Josh's chair, you're in exceptionally good hands. You know, but if you grew up with a guy, you might have a problem with that on the inside. Familiarity breeds contempt. Well, in a deeper, much, meaningful, much more meaningful way, that's a little bit of what we encounter here in Mark chapter 6. Now, we want to get a running start into our passage, so I'm going to build a bit of a front porch here to try to orient us to Mark and the broader section in Mark, and then we're going to take off. But we're going to spend some time taxiing on the runway here. But this is very important information if you're going to get the thrust and the scope of Mark chapter 6, 1 through 13. I want to introduce you to two important literary devices that Mark uses as a powerful technique of communication in his gospel account as he retells the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark is a captivating and powerful storyteller. And two devices that are his favorites are the devices of sandwiching. It's what it's been come to refer to in New Testament studies. They call it a Markan sandwich and then also the use of irony. First, let's deal with the Markin sandwich. Both of these devices actually feature in our passage. So you'll find this to be the case, that often Mark will bookend or frame out his message, giving us markers to indicate, highlight, and underscore key themes. You know, so if you're reading your Bible, there aren't things that are pre-highlighted, right? So a storyteller, has to use techniques and devices to drive a point home. And one way that Mark does that, we've come to refer to as a Markan sandwich. For example, look at Mark 1.1. Look in your text at Mark 1.1, put your finger there, and flip to Mark, Mark 15.39, all the way in the back. Mark uses his famous technique in the first sentence of his gospel account and towards the last part of his gospel account. Notice the way he begins the story. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now flip to Mark 15, 39, where you had your finger. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. That title, Son of God, an incredibly important title ascribed to Jesus in the gospel of Mark, forms bookends in these texts, or a sandwich. And this is Mark's subtle yet powerful way of telling us that this is what the story is all about. From cover to cover, from front to back, he's telling us the all-important identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Who is he, son of God? And everything in between details and expounds upon that theme. That is one of his most important themes. And he uses this sandwiching technique in other places in his gospel account. Let me just give you another example, because I know you're finding this so fascinating. So here's one more to whet your appetite. In the previous text that I'm, I'm assuming Aaron preached through in Mark chapter 5, we encounter some miraculous healings performed by Jesus. So Jesus is approached by a synagogue ruler named Jairus, who has a daughter who's ill and on death's door. And he pleads with Jesus to come and heal his daughter. Well, when they're in route to go see his daughter, 
You remember the woman who had suffered from a 12-year incurable hemorrhage of blood comes and secretly touches Jesus' garment. And she had the kind of faith that led her to believe if she simply touched his garment, she would be miraculously healed. And when it happens, it transpires according to her faith that um, the, the bleeding issue was healed in her body. And then she sensed in the moment that she was healed. Jesus pauses the journey and he demands to know who touched him. And she comes forward and confesses and he tells her, Go your way. Your faith has saved you. Then, Jairus's, some of his household servants approach, and they inform him that actually his daughter is now dead, and Jesus' services are no longer needed. What does Jesus tell him to do? Do you know what Jesus tells him to do? Believe. He tells him the same lesson that the woman had just demonstrated. This is another one of those Mark and sandwiches. Mark is pointing to the absolutely necessary response of faith in Jesus. This woman's faith moved mountains, so to speak. The same response is demanded of Jairus, not to be fearful, not to doubt, but to believe. And then they arrive at his home. Jesus raises the daughter back to life and restores her to his parents. And the message is the necessary response to Jesus and his ministry. By that sandwich, Mark is highlighting what we need to clue into. Does that make sense? It's a very important device that Mark uses throughout the book, and it's going to become important in our passage. Now, the second device he likes to use is irony. I'm sure you're familiar with irony. Irony occurs when expectations are turned upside down. Irony presents shocking twists. When something completely unexpected happens, we say, well, that was ironic. And in communication, the use of irony effectively makes a point. It drives the message home. Uh, so, for example, remember that text I just quoted or pointed your attention to in Mark chapter 15, 39, where the centurion says, truly, this man was a son of God. We are meant to see that as dripping with irony. Because throughout Jesus' life in his earthly ministry, so many Israelites, so many of God's people, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, rejected Jesus as an insurrectionist and had him crucified and killed. And then a Roman pagan, the officer responsible to oversee the execution, confesses him as son of God. Well, this is terribly ironic. Apparently, the centurion has more faith than so many Israelites living in the time of Jesus. Irony makes the point and throws it into sharp relief. You could think of another one, probably one of my favorites in Mark chapter 8. You haven't gotten there yet, but I trust that you will. Jesus heals a blind man and restores his sight. It's a famous passage outside of Jer Jericho. Um, the blind man is crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. The people try to hush him and send him away, but Jesus calls him and restores his sight. That title he uses is vitally important. He essentially calls Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, son of David. It is one of the highest Christologies in all of the Gospel of Mark. And this is a blind man. Uh, surrounding that passage, the disciples themselves were shocked by the miraculous things that Jesus did. Like at the end of Mark chapter 4, they say, when Jesus calms the storm, they say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
They had spent time with Jesus, yet they didn't yet have eyes to see his full identity. Um, the religious leaders are constantly rejecting Jesus, even accusing him of acting by the power of Beelzebub, casting out demons by the power of Satan. But in Mark chapter 8, we encounter a blind man with spiritual sight, with perfect vision. And that's the irony. That's the message that we're intended to grasp. So the use of sandwiching and the use of irony are ways in which Mark conveys his message to us. And these powerful literary devices come rushing together in our passage today. Remember, I said that Jesus as Son of God is a key theme that weaves throughout the story of Mark. And in another um, ironic twist, there are several encounters with unclean spirits or demons in which the demons themselves acclaim Jesus as the Son of God, as if to say they knew better about the identity of Jesus uh, than the Israelites at the time, than the religious leaders, often better than the disciples who were so shocked and stunned by the ministry and the miracles of Jesus. Listen to these statements from demons, one coming from Mark 1, um, one from Mark 3, and one from Mark 5. In Mark 1, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Mark 3, um, Jesus casts out a demon and he exclaims, you are the Son of God. In Mark 5, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So again, the irony is, the demons can see who Jesus is. The question is, can the people of Nazareth see it? Can Jesus' own family members, uh, the people he grew up with and rubbed shoulders with, the people that he lived among for decades, do they have eyes to see the reality of who he is as the Son of God. And importantly for our time together this morning, can you see it? Can you see with eyes of faith who Jesus truly is? And have you given the response that he deserves? That's the question that our text addresses and answers. So now, my friends, for the desired moment, I feel like I'm in and out, so I'm, I'm just going to swallow this microphone. For the moment of truth, we arrive at our passage in Mark chapter 6. Now, I think we are well positioned to understand the thrust of what Mark has for us in this text. This passage informs us of the response of Jesus' own hometown, his patrida. When Jesus returns home, will he be well received? Will they respond to his teaching? Will they acclaim him as Lord, Messiah, and Son of God? That is what you would expect, but in an ironic twist, we actually find that that's not the case. This pre presents to us another shocking development in the upside-down messianic kingdom, an unexpected turn in the ministry of Jesus. So I want to give you a big-picture overview. Let's all go up, take a breath for just a second. We've heard some things. We're all going to go up for a breather. Here's a big picture of where our story is going, of where the message is going. I want to give you a roadmap in your mind so that you can track and follow. The theme of the message is this, honor Christ. It's very simple and straightforward. Honor Christ. That's the driving thrust of Mark 6, 1 through 13. And that message unpacks into two parts. In Mark 6, 1 through 6, the first point made is honor Christ 
by guarding against pride and presumption. There's a warning here. Honor Christ by guarding against pride and presumption. Or another title would be there's an ironic rejection of Jesus in this passage. First of all, we'll deal with that warning. And then there's a positive admonition for prophetic reception. This is the second part of the message. Again, this is just an overview before we drill down and develop these two parts. Honor Christ by receiving his messengers. The first was a warning, and the second is a positive admonition. Honor Christ by guarding against pride and presumption, and then honor Christ by receiving his messengers. Let's look again at Mark 6, 1 through 6. I'll read those verses, and we'll work through them. Mark 6, 1 through 6. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. We're going to split that verse in half and save that transition for the next section. So this part of the passage falls under the heading, Honor Christ by Guarding Against Pride and Presumption. And this is an ironic rejection of Jesus. So as you can see very plainly, Jesus returns to his hometown in this passage in the region of Galilee, where his ministry has focused up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. He has ministered all around the Sea of Galilee. He returns to his hometown of Nazareth. This is explicitly said in the parallel account in Luke chapter 4, which records the same event in the life of Christ. Um, remember how this scene connects with what precedes. This follows after powerful demonstrations of faith. This is how Jesus is admonishing. People must respond to him and his message about the kingdom and his teaching. Uh, Mark 1.15, when Jesus launched his earthly ministry, his message was, repent and believe. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. In a nutshell, that's been the summary message um, that Jesus has been preaching and teaching abroad. He is God's Messiah, God's anointed one. Um, he is the one who has come to accomplish and offer redemption and the forgiveness of sins, a reconciled relationship with Almighty God, adoption into, truly into the family of God in which you can know God as Father. That's what he's offering in his teaching and in his message. Some people respond in faith, and some people respond in abject rejection. The woman in the previous passage, who fascinatingly is unnamed, who touched his garment and she was healed of her blood hemorrhaging, um, she demonstrates that necessary response of faith, the kind of faith that was adamant in the pursuit of Christ. 
uh, the kind of faith that trusted and believed and put all confidence in who Jesus was and what he could do for her. So again, the question now is, uh, when Jesus goes to his own hometown, what kind of reception is he going to get? And you would think he would be celebrated, warmly welcomed and embraced. I mean, these are the people that have lived for decades alongside of Jesus. As you can see in what they say and affirm, they knew Jesus' nuclear family very well. They were very well acquainted with Jesus, uh, with Mary, with his siblings. So you can think of other texts that we have, like for say in the Gospel of Luke, when Mary is told that she is going to give birth to the Son of the Most High. Uh, when Joseph is told that he should name his son Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. When Jesus is presented in the temple and he's circumcised and he receives his name, uh, what was acclaimed there by Simeon, who was pointing forward to how Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles. You can think of the account when Jesus is a child and he goes on pilgrimage to Zion, to Jerusalem, the temple, to observe the festivals. And then when the family is returning, they can't find Jesus. He's not with the company, so he goes back. So they go back to find him. And he told them that he was in his father's house. And the people listening to his teaching in the temple were astonished that he had such a profound knowledge of God. So the, the people in Jesus' life, to one degree or another, had to be acquainted with these events, with at least some of what was foretold about Jesus and what his family had experienced. Um, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, in those initial chapters, Luke tells us that Mary was treasuring these things up in her heart. So you would think that these people who lived with Jesus, uh, who was sinless, and perfect, who perfectly loved God with all of his heart and loved his neighbor as himself. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. You would think that they would acclaim and welcome and celebrate Jesus for all that he is. Yet, shockingly, we find out in Mark chapter 3 that his own family, his nuclear family, his mother, sister, and brothers, as referenced in this passage, were trying to silence him. At the end of Mark chapter 3, they were actually embarrassed by him. Apparently, they thought that he was making too much of himself, ostensibly perhaps because he was trying to whip himself up a following or something like that. His own family denied and rejected him, at least in this, at this juncture, at this point in his life and in his ministry. Again, this is shockingly ironic. So, According to custom, he goes in the temple to teach. We know in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus had a powerful teaching ministry, that he taught people as one who had authority, uh, meaning he did not rely on the Mishnah and the Talmud for interpretations of Old Testament passages. He didn't give conjecture about Old Testament texts. He interpreted them with clarity and power and authority, drawing on himself as the final court of appeal for what the Bible means. He wasn't just giving commentary. He was pointing to himself as the source and substance of Scripture in some sense. You can think of a passage like the Sermon on the Mount as a powerful example of Jesus' teaching. Um, people were astonished by the authority of his teaching and the corresponding miracles that often combined with his teaching ministry he was controlling demons, casting them out, liberating people from demonic oppression. 
They were shocked by the demonstrations of his power and authority. And when he gets up in his own hometown, in his own synagogue, to teach, unfortunately, the people are scandalized by him. So notice what they say. Where did this man get these things? Uh, you can almost hear the patronizing tone in their voice. They respond with astonishment and incredulity. What is this wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the, the carpenter, the son of Mary? It's fascinating to think of uh, the human Jesus, that he was fully man. And by trade, before he launched his earthly ministry, as is indicated here, he was a craftsman. So this means someone who works with wood and stone, someone who does maintenance and repair, that that was his trade seemingly inherited from his father, Joseph. Isn't this the craftsman? Who does he think he is? Teaching with authority, performing mighty deeds? They respond in hardened rejection and unbelief. And they say, is not his mother Mary here with us? Um, Seemingly, maybe you've heard this theory before, it's fascinating that after the birth narratives, we really don't hear about Joseph, and most, um, most deduce that perhaps it's because he's passed away and he's already dead at this point. So they identify Mary as Jesus' biological parent, and it's true because of the virgin birth, Mary was Jesus' only biological parent. Is not his mother Mary with us? And his brothers and his sisters... A few of these brothers, James, probably is James the Just, the one who went uh, in later, later church history, uh, gave us the epistle of James and became the lead elder of the church in Jerusalem, the one known for his rich, vibrant prayer life. Eventually, he became a disciple. Uh, the Judas is perhaps, it's um, also a bit of conjecture, but perhaps the one who wrote the short epistle of Jude that we have here in the New Testament. So these are Jesus' half-siblings, uh, born to Mary and Joseph. He had half-siblings, half-brothers and sisters, and they lived in the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And these people are so shell-shocked uh, that Jesus, a descendant or a part of this family from their hometown, could be the one he purports to be, the one that the Old Testament acclaims him as Messiah and Son of God. So this is one of those tragic ironies. They respond not in faith, not by embracing Jesus, but they respond in shocking unbelief. So when the passage says they were scandalized by him, that's the literal term. It means their hearts were hardened and unbelief. And this occurs when someone is exposed to the truth, yet they choose to harden their hearts against it. That's what it means for someone to be scandalized. They, they stumbled over the cornerstone, and they could not believe that Jesus from Nazareth, from this family in the local town, was actually Son of God and Savior, the one to whom they owe complete allegiance, devotion, and worship, the one they desperately need to rescue them from sin and death. That was too far. That was something they didn't have eyes to see, and they didn't have ears to hear, and they were scandalized by Jesus. The New Testament returns to this word often, talking about the scandal of the cross, that for so many, especially in the first century Roman word, the cross was a scandal. 
to think that the Son of God subjected himself to, to absolute um, humiliation, shame, excruciating pain, and rejection, public scorn in the cross? For most people in society, that is an absolutely ridiculous message. That's the silliest thing uh, one could ever say, that the Son of God would be rejected and crucified on the cross. Um, that's not what gods are supposed to do. Gods are supposed to rule and reign in triumph. But obviously that's why Jesus came, to offer his life up as a ransom to pay the penalty for the sins of God's people. Otherwise, there would be no salvation or hope for sinners, for the lost and wicked like us. So uh, the people in Jesus' hometown are scandalized by him, responding to gracious revelation in hard-hearted unbelief. And this is shocking, and you need to wake up to this reality. I need to wake up to this reality and pray that God works to open blind eyes and to soften hard hearts. Um, Jesus responds to them by way of a proverb. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his own relatives, and in his own household. This conveys that message. Familiarity, and I'd add this, Familiarity with pride breeds contempt. Uh, they didn't see their desperate need for a savior, and they couldn't see the true identity of Jesus, as the demons even acclaimed that he is, in fact, the Son of God come to earth as the savior. Again, this taps into a super important theme. We are, we're plowing our way through. We're almost done with this first heading, so stick in there with me, and it will pay dividends. This taps into a majorly important theme at this point in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has emphasized in his teaching um, to listen carefully to the Word of God. That's why we read Isaiah 55, because that's what's stressed in Isaiah 55. The word of God proceeds out from God's mouth, and it will accomplish all of God's purposes. It will not re return void. Like the rain and the snow come down from heaven and water the earth and produce the effect that God intends, so also will God's words be that go out from his mouth. They will accomplish divine purposes. But you and I have responsibility to be careful how we listen. This message is not a human message. It doesn't originate in the mind and will of men. This message, as exposited from the passage from God's inscripturated word, is God's message. God is speaking to you in the message of his words. And you're responsible as a creature to sit under the word of the creator and listen. And you have to listen carefully. And the terrifying reality is, as Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, that the devil actually wants to snatch away the word that's sown in you. Anytime the word goes out and the hearer doesn't understand, the devil has snatched away the word. And spiritual warfare, we engage in spiritual warfare. Also, opposition and persecution wants to snuff out that word so that you don't respond in repentance and faith. The desire for money and the love of other things like the thorns wants to choke out the word that is sown in you. So you have to be careful how you listen. And the tragic reality vividly illustrated by this passage is Jesus' own family members, the people in his patrida, in his village, his hometown, you could say like mi pueblo, the people in his hometown 
were shocked and scandalized by him, and they didn't respond. You'd think, what, what a tragedy. This is the worst development that could possibly happen. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit in the message, but it, it seems important to mention it here. This is going to be something that Jesus emphasizes when he sends his apostles out two by two, and they go throughout the region of Galilee, preaching the gospel of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And they demonstrate the truth of that message with powerful works and mighty deeds, casting out demons and healing people. There were many people in many towns who just absolutely scorned their message and rejected them. And Jesus said, it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those towns. That's the message of this passage that the people dwelling in darkness had seen a great light. On them, a light had shone, yet they did not have eyes to see it, and they didn't have ears to hear it. So, this is the ironic rejection. Honor Christ by guarding against pride and presumption. Every word of God that you and I hear, we are responsible and accountable for. To the one who hears and responds in repentance and faith, more will be given. It will be given in an abundance. But to the one who hardens his heart, even what he has will be taken away. That's Jesus' message in Mark chapter 4. So the question is, how are you responding to the word of God, gracious revelation that God has poured out on you, given you in his word, in the ministry of Christ Community Church? Be careful how you listen. The people you would think are listening and responding in this text actually aren't. People from Jesus' own hometown. Be careful how you listen. Respond to God's word in acclamation, in repentance, and faith. The second part of the passage is in verses 6 through 13. And the message of this part is prophetic reception. Honor Christ by receiving his messengers. He sends out messengers. Honor him by receiving them, by honoring them and their word. Let me read the second part of our text. We'll pick it up in Mark 6, the second part of verse 6. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this next scene continues to highlight various responses to Jesus and his message. This upcoming scene makes the point that a person's response to Christ's messengers determines his or her very response to Christ himself. So the way that these towns in Galilee, and this is, you know, we kind of have to put ourselves in the setting. It's a different setting, and it's absolutely shocking. 
The kingdom of God had come near to them. The eternal son of God had took on human flesh, God incarnate. He had come to dwell with his people, to defeat the devil and his host, to crush death itself, to offer salvation and redemption. He was performing countless undeniable signs of his power and authority as almighty God. He was casting out demons. He was teaching with authority. He demonstrated power and authority over nature. They should have had eyes to see and realize that what the prophets had said was coming true in their midst, that Yahweh himself had come to visit them in human flesh, and the response was, repent and believe. Trust in him alone as Lord and Savior. But again, the shocking reality is most people actually didn't think that. Most people rejected his message, which is the reality we find in the world today. And so Jesus was in a time now where he's sending out his apostolic emissaries, his messengers, as an extension of his own ministry, telling people what he had been telling people all along in his ministry. Repent. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sin. Turn back to God to receive his grace and his salvation in the person of Jesus. Now, here's the connection that we have to make. This is how it ties in with the previous passage. The way you respond to true messengers of Jesus is the way you respond to Jesus himself. Prophetic reception. Honor Christ by receiving or honoring his messengers. The way you respond to genuine messengers of Christ is the same way that you're actually responding to Jesus. Those two realities are inseparable. You cannot bifurcate them. You cannot separate them. They're inseparably tied together. So if in a town where Jesus sent two apostles, if they dishonored these messengers, had no place for them, cast them out, rejected their message, Jesus said, knock the dust off of your sandals. Parallel accounts in the Gospels tell us this is an expansion of what Jesus says here. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. That should give you goosebumps. That should shake you to the very core. Sodom and Gomorrah, those are the most infamous, you know, those are the most infamous names in all of Scripture. People who were destroyed by fire and brimstone. Instantaneous judgment from above. It will be better for them on the day of judgment than the people who rejected Jesus and his apostles in Jesus' day. And here's the reason. Because these people in the Gospels had access to greater revelation, much greater revelation. The true and living God was among them with his messengers sending out emissaries, sending out ambassadors, telling them, turn from your sin and rebellion, turn back to God, recognize the work that he's doing in your days, in your midst, and receive it. But again, the sad irony is so many of them didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. In a parallel account in Mark, Matthew 10, this is what Jesus says to the apostles when he sends them out. The one who welcomes you welcomes me. And the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me, that is the Father. So we see very clearly to reject Christ's messengers is to reject Christ himself. And the punishment is certain and severe. So we begin to see how the apostles are going to minister and the kind of role that they're going to take on as the message of Mark develops. In Mark chapter 3, this is a passage you already covered, but Jesus chose the 12 that they might be with him 
that he might send them out to preach and that they might have authority to cast out demons. That's detailed in Mark chapter 3. And they come into their own and begin to exercise their own ministry in this passage as Jesus sends them out two by two into the villages to spread his message of repentance. And in this passage, um, Jesus assigns to them power, power to cast out demons. And then as the text records um, their ministry and what transpired, the attendant power to heal, to heal the sick and to do mighty deeds. So he commissions them two by two to minister throughout the Galilean countryside. And I think here's an important theme that we have to pick up on. By way of vivid symbolism, Jesus is reconstituting the people of God around himself. He is the cornerstone. He elects 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and he tells people to repent and believe in him as God's appointed Messiah. In other words, if you want to be in the family of God, if you want to be in um, other terms of other terms in the New Testament would be in true Israel or a true descendant of Abraham, what's required now is not circumcision. It's not keeping the Jewish food laws and the festivals and all the prescriptions of the Torah. If you want to be in the family of God, you have to be attached to Jesus. Jesus is regathering the people of God around himself, built on himself as the cornerstone. And his 12 emissaries symbolize that reality. He is reconstituting the people of God as Lord and Savior. And he's telling people to receive the message, to repent and believe, to embrace him as Lord and Savior. And that's the mission for which he sends out the apostles to accomplish powerful attendant signs and miracles that testify and affirm the message of repentance. Now, Jesus' instructions are interesting. Maybe you have curiosity about that. He tells them, take one staff, one pair of sandals, one cloak, no extra provisions, no food, no bag, no money for your belts or spare garments. Apparently, their light travel reflects the urgency of their mission. They can't be encumbered uh, by baggage and the responsibility of hospitality on the parts of those to whom they minister. So Jesus told them, if a home receives you, stay with that home until you depart to minister in the next town. This reinforces the point that the workman is worthy of his hire. This is a point or a, a eternal truth principle we encounter throughout Scripture. The Old Testament says, don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Paul picks up that text in the New Testament and says that a minister of the gospel should make his living by the gospel. Uh, that's embedded in the instructions that Jesus gives to his apostles. Where you go to minister, if they'll receive you into their home, they'll make provision for you, stay in that home until you depart to minister in the next town. But here's the warning. In the places where they don't receive you, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. This is very clearly a pronouncement of judgment. Those who reject God's gracious revelation will be held accountable. And again, um, this, forms, um, this forms a seam with the previous passage making the same point in a different way. People who encounter revelation, gracious revelation from God, are responsible for it and accountable for it. 
to respond as God commands. And in this case, the response is to repent and believe. And so the disciples embark, proclaiming Jesus' message of repentance. And as they go, they perform miracles, casting out demons and healing the sick. The anointing of oil symbolized God's power at work. We see that later in the New Testament in James 5. It symbolized um, God's presence to heal. And Jesus entrusts to them and empowers them for these miraculous works in this ministry. And these demonstrations of power testify beyond doubt to the reality of God's kingdom present in and through Jesus. You know, this, is, this was a very different time period in redemptive history. But if you heard the apostles' med- message, if you sat under the ministry of Jesus and you saw these miraculous powers at work in the world, overcoming the devil and turning back the curse, you should have concluded, the kingdom of God is in our midst. What the prophets foretold is coming to pass in the person of Jesus right here, right now. Truly, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. I need to repent and believe in what God is doing in and through Jesus. That's a kind of ministry that Jesus and the apostles had. So remember, the overall point of this passage is honor Christ by receiving or honoring his messengers. And there's application for us here today. Um, Preachers, Pastors, evangelists, missionaries, people who are responsible to handle God's word are charged to do so in the New Testament as though they're speaking the very oracles of God. So when you come to the assembly and um, someone that God has gifted and enabled to pastor your congregation and to equip you for works of service for the building up of the body of Christ, that's language from Ephesians chapter 4, you should come as though you are hearing from God himself as the word is exposited and opened up. If they're preaching God's word faithfully, if they're handling God's word faithfully, then the message comes from God Almighty. Remember, the words of Scripture are inspired words. They themselves are God's breathed-out words. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 tells us that they are um, breathed out by God for a re- Uh, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So when we come to the assembly to sit under the word of the Lord, we need to acknowledge and recognize, though it's coming through a messenger, like a pastor or someone who's opening up the word, though it's coming through a messenger, it's actually coming from the exalted Lord. That the Lord is at work in his church through his messengers And the way we respond to the messengers when they're accurately handling the message, I'm obviously, you know, that doesn't account for when a pastor abuses the word of God. That's plainly obvious. But when they're rightly dividing the word of truth that the scriptures say, the Lord is speaking to you and you're accountable for it. And the way that you respond to the message is not separate from the way that you respond to the Lord himself. They're actually one and the same. So honor Christ by receiving his messengers. That's the second part of our text this morning. And remember, the overall theme is honor Christ. You and I are so privileged in the amount of access we have to divine truth, to revelation. We have received the gospel message. 
We have sat under its hearing. We have heard the message of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for eternal salvation and redemption. And therefore, we are accountable for that message. Before the living God, we have a high degree of accountability. And here's the tragically ironic and scary thing. The people that Jesus rubbed shoulders with for decades in his own hometown, they didn't have eyes to see and they didn't have ears to hear. And so many Israelites living in Jesus' time in the countryside of Galilee, in the towns to which the apostles preached the kingdom of God, did not have eyes to see and did not have ears to hear. And they'll be held accountable for that. They should have honored Christ. and So many rejected him. And you and I will be held accountable for the truth that we've received. So the message this morning is, honor Christ. Let's pray for God's help and power to walk in obedience. Father, we are so thankful that those dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And on us, the light of Isaiah's prophecy has shown that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one whom, uh, by whom all things were made and without whom was nothing made that was made, the Creator and Lord, the firstborn from the dead, the head of the church, that Jesus has come, that he's accomplished redemption, that he laid down his perfectly righteous life in our place, that he had the power to take his life up again because of his sinlessness, that he rose in victory over sin and death, and he crushed the devil and his power, and he offered to us forgiveness and eternal life, if we respond in repentance and faith. Thank you so much for the gospel message, the word. Please give us eyes to hear, uh, excuse me, eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray, we earnestly pray that no one in this congregation under the sound of the word would be scandalized by the message, scandalized by Jesus responding in hard-heartedness and unbelief. We beg you that you would make our hearts tender to truth, responsive, uh, that we would be like that woman healed from her bleeding condition, responding in faith, in a rich, dependent, vibrant, humble faith. Please help us in this. In it's Christ's name we pray. Amen.